Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 255, The Third Crusade, part 1. Last time, we heard how the Sultan of Egypt, Saladin, took control of Nur al-Din's empire and used its resources to crush the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Utramir was always outmanned and outgunned by its Muslim neighbours, but no one had been able to bring that superiority to bear until Saladin came along. Once the Crusader army had been annihilated, nothing stood between the Sultan and Jerusalem itself. The Holy City quickly surrendered on the 2nd of October, 1187. As you can imagine, news of this disaster spread rapidly towards Western Europe, and Pope Gregory VIII immediately called for a new crusade to rescue As I mentioned two episodes ago, the timing couldn't have been worse for Isaac Angelos. The new emperor was struggling to keep control of the Roman world. He could barely trust his own nobles, the Bulgarian rebellion was gathering steam, and he just learnt of a new uprising in Anatolia. This was led by the governor of Philadelphia, Theodore Mangafas. Philadelphia was the capital of the revived Thracision theme, and with little support coming from Constantinople, Theodore was left alone to deal with a nasty Turkic raid the year before. So he did what all the nobility were doing these days, he declared himself emperor and stopped sending tax to the capital. Isaac took his army across the waters and besieged Philadelphia early in 1189, but reports soon reached him that a German-led army of crusaders was on the move and would be crossing into the Balkans in a couple of months. Isaac was forced to negotiate with Theodore. Mangafas was allowed to remain governor of Philadelphia as long as he renounced his imperial title and sent his sons to Isaac as hostages. It was a solution which made Isaac look weak, but as had been the pattern of his rule so far, the emperor felt he had no other choice. After all, the worst Mangafas could do was deprive him of tax revenue, whereas the Latins could deprive him of Constantinople. The crusade had been preached far and wide during 1188. The fall of Jerusalem to the Muslims was a shocking enough event to stir the hearts of many a Latin. But when combined with the usual propaganda about Muslim brutality, men were chomping at the bit to head east. As with the Second Crusade, heads of state proudly signed up to do their duty. The Emperor of Germany and King of France were again on hand to lead the faithful, and on this occasion they were joined by the King of England as well. The monarchs of the latter two nations decided to sail east, though. 
taking with them relatively small numbers of committed professional soldiers. Whereas, the Emperor of Germany, Frederick Barbarossa, would lead a more traditional popular crusade, the majority of whom were experienced fighters, but with room for some enthusiastic civilians as well. This gathering of armed pilgrims was too vast for any fleet to carry, so Barbarossa announced his intention to lead them to Jerusalem the old-fashioned way, on foot, across the Byzantine Empire. Isaac had sent envoys to Nuremberg in autumn 1188 to discuss terms with the German emperor, and these discussions were friendly, following the same contours as past negotiations. The Romans promised to allow the Crusaders to cross their lands, to provide markets for them, and to ship them over to Anatolia. While in return, Barbarossa agreed that his men would not attack Roman settlements en route. But despite this seemingly good-natured agreement, both sides were far more suspicious of each other than had been the case in the past. The Romans had every reason to be suspicious of Frederick Barbarossa. They had not forgotten his fractious relationship with Manuel, his insulting letters referring to Komnenos as king of the Greeks, or the threats he'd issued, real or imagined, towards Byzantium. The German monarch, now in his late 60s, was a hugely respected and commanding figure in Latin Europe. If anyone could succeed in capturing Constantinople, it would surely be him. More grounded worries were found in the form of Serbian and Bulgarian ambassadors also present at Nuremberg. The Romans knew exactly what that meant. These rebellious Balkan statelets were trying to gain German patronage and would certainly attempt to poison Barbarossa's mind against them. The presence of Serbian and Bulgarian armies in the Balkans definitely made Isaac's job harder. Both groups were occupying Roman lands, meaning harvests of food and tax were not reaching the emperor. And with the rebellion in Anatolia only just halted, Angelos was worried that the necessary resources to supply the crusaders might be hard to come by. Still, all these worries were on the Roman side. The Latins had no reason to be suspicious of the God-fearing Byzantines, did they? The Latins gathering in Germany were, of course, men who had a passion for crusading. They had read, or at least heard, the stories of the glorious First Crusade and the disappointments of the Second, both of which, in Latin accounts, included anti-Byzantine sentiments. Roman intransigence and duplicity were widely believed to be a factor in the failings of those missions. Barbarossa himself had taken part in the Second Crusade, he had swung his sword at Byzantine troops. He knew that their promises of friendship were not always backed up by action. More recent events clouded the horizon too. Just seven years earlier, Latin merchants had been massacred on the Golden Horn on the orders of the Emperor Andronicus. And it gets worse. Rumours had been circulating in the West that the Byzantines had formed an alliance with Saladin himself. Diplomatic contact with Saladin is not mentioned by Coniates, but is detailed in a letter that an unknown Latin source sent west during Andronicus's reign. The contents of the letter included a plan for the Romans and Muslims to work together to destroy Utremir. 
at which point Byzantium would gain control of Jerusalem and various other cities, while Saladin would keep the rest. Such a plot is pure fantasy, but the gist of what was being discussed may well be true. It would fit into the centuries-long understanding between Constantinople and Cairo. You may remember that back in the reign of Basil II, these two powers developed a diplomatic status quo. Enough space existed between them to avoid direct conflict, and the one thing which the emperor always asked of the caliph was to allow orthodox priests to be left in charge of the churches of the Holy Land. Roman emperors saw themselves as the head of the Christian world, and their protection of the holy sites had usually been respected by the various Muslim powers who controlled them. It's entirely possible, then, that Andronicus had sent a standard letter to Saladin, saying that, in the unlikely event that you become master of Jerusalem, we would like our former rights restored. As ever, the confusion for the Latins was the idea that the Byzantines would be interested in suzerainty, over a place they did not physically occupy. Hence the garbled interpretation of Roman policy being aimed at the capture of Jerusalem itself. That's the best guess we have anyway about what was going on. These rumours were inflamed when Saladin actually captured Jerusalem and handed over control of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to the local Orthodox clergy. This seemed to confirm the worst suspicions of the Latins, and soon men and women in Utremir were writing home to warn their fellow Latins not to trust the Byzantines, who, outrageously, were working with Saladin. On this occasion, we actually have confirmation from the Muslim sources that negotiations were going on. And as we suspected, Isaac Angelos merely wrote to confirm that the rights of his clergy would be respected. In return, the emperor ordered that the prayers said in Constantinople's mosque would be directed to the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad from now on. For the last two centuries, they had commemorated the Fatimid Caliphs in Egypt, who Saladin had just eliminated. It was in a mood of mutual suspicion and fear, then, that the Crusader armies crossed into Byzantine territory on the 1st of July, 1189. Barbarossa had just enjoyed a relatively trouble-free crossing of Hungary, where King Bela had not only treated him with all due respect and hospitality, but had provided him with money and troops to aid the crusade. Our best estimate is that Barbarossa had 20,000 men at his back as he crossed into the Balkans. The Germans sent envoys ahead to Constantinople, while Barbarossa was greeted by the Byzantine governor of Branicevo. The emperor was warmly greeted and given gifts and set off south a few days later, but almost immediately things started to go wrong. According to the German accounts, they were directed down the wrong road south, which hampered their progress, and they were constantly attacked by local bandits. Horses were stolen, carts plundered, and unarmed pilgrims murdered. When the knights captured some of these thugs, they confessed that the governor of Branicevo had directed them to attack the crusaders. This could be an excuse which the crooks hoped would help them avoid punishment, but it's possible that the Romans had encouraged the locals to attack the Latins in order to soften them up and make them more dependent on Byzantine assistance. During the First and Second Crusades, similar incidents took place. 
The next stop on the journey was the town of Nish, which the Romans had not rebuilt since it was sacked by the Hungarians a few years before. It was being occupied by the forces of the Serbian leader, Stefan Nemanja. The Serbs welcomed the Germans warmly and asked Barbarossa if he would officially endorse their conquest of the town. Barbarossa, whose only concern was to keep the crusade on track, demurred. Envoys from the Bulgarians also visited him and offered assistance against the Romans, but again, Frederick remained hopeful that Isaac would honour the promises he'd made. Reports of these meetings in Constantinople caused serious alarm and fed Isaac's fears that Barbarossa's real target was Constantinople, a paranoia that was present every time the Crusaders marched through the Balkans. The Germans continued south but were infuriated to find that the mountain passes had been blocked with rocks and felled trees. This slowed them down considerably and left them exposed to more attacks. Latin accounts report arrows being fired at them from the trees and goods being stolen in the night. Malaria and dysentery also began to spread in the camp. When the host finally reached Sofia, the next Byzantine town, they were further angered to find the inhabitants had all fled, taking their food and supplies with them. Barbarossa was becoming increasingly frustrated. The Romans may not have been directly opposing the crusade, but they were doing everything they could to slow its progress and hamper morale. The confused Roman response to the Latin advance is well articulated by our historian Nikitas Coniates. He says that the inexperienced Isaac was torn between those advising him to treat the Crusaders as friends and those who saw them as enemies. The emperor vacillated. The goal for Byzantine emperors in these scenarios is to be outwardly friendly while inwardly firm. You want the Latins to feel accommodated, but you also want them to be dependent on your largesse. This dependence will make them obedient. It will stop them from attacking your people and get them to cross over to Anatolia in an orderly fashion. These tactics worked well for Alexius and Manuel because they had the power to back them up. But with Isaac's realm in chaos, he was clearly afraid that the Latins might take advantage of him. With little legitimacy to call upon, there was every chance that Isaac would be stabbed in the back by one of his nobles particularly if the Latins lingered too long on their lands. Presumably, then, his efforts to slow and weaken the crusade were a clumsy attempt to even the playing field, making them less able to attack Constantinople itself. But, of course, it's a dangerous game. At what point do your obstructions become a provocation? Coniates was caught in the middle of all this. Since the fall of Andronicus... His career had been on the fast track. His patron was good friends with Isaac, and Nikitas's rhetorical skills had been put to use to praise the new regime. Coniates was therefore promoted to be governor of Philippopolis in the central Balkans, which would be the Germans' next stop. Our eyewitness reports that he spent weeks strengthening the defences of the city, only then to receive a letter from Isaac ordering him to tear down some of the walls to stop Barbarossa from being able to use the city as a fortified camp. Hilariously, Coniates also observed agents being sent out to block the nearby mountain passes, 
but they blocked the wrong passes and watched on with horror as the Germans made steady progress towards the city. Given the bad blood between the two sides, Coniates decided to abandon Philippopolis at this point. He didn't strip the city of provisions, though, meaning at least the Latins had something to eat when they arrived. Not that this did much to improve Barbarossa's mood. The emperor had worked hard to maintain the discipline of his army and stop them from raiding the countryside. But Isaac had failed to provide any money or markets for his men, and their supplies had run out. So Frederick had no choice at this point but to cut them loose. The Latins fanned out and began taking food from the locals. Coniates and his subordinates joined a small Byzantine army nearby sent to shadow the Germans. But Frederick's forces were alarmed when they discovered them and launched a surprise attack which quickly scattered the Roman troops. At this point, Isaac finally made diplomatic contact with his opposite number. Unfortunately, it was to inform Frederick that the envoys he'd sent ahead had been arrested and were being held in response to Barbarossa's meeting with the Serbs and Bulgarians. This angered the Germans, who saw the arrest of the envoys as an act of war, and found the grandiloquent tone of the envoys insulting. Isaac had also referred to Frederick as King of the Germans, rather than Emperor of the Romans, in his letter, which was a major faux pas. Isaac's letter demanded new hostages be sent to guarantee the Crusades' good behaviour. Once they were sent, markets would be opened in accordance with the original agreement. Frederick restrained himself and simply responded that when his envoys were set free, he would be happy to talk about sending fresh hostages. Meanwhile, he gave his men further license to assault the Byzantine countryside to gather the provisions they needed. This they did easily, capturing the surrounding towns and forts. This was a darkly serious matter. The crusaders were turning into an enemy army, occupying Roman lands at the point of a sword. By now it was November, and Barbarossa realised that because of the delays he'd faced, he would need to winter in Byzantine territory. He therefore marched south and captured the city of Adrianople. His subordinates spread out across Thrace, taking what they needed from the peasantry and occupying more fortresses. Isaac continued to change his mind. Coniates was now back at the capital and told Isaac what he'd learnt. The emperor was shocked to hear that many Latins actually believed he was in league with Saladin. He reopened negotiations with Barbarossa, and peace seemed close at hand. But when he was told that the Germans would be staying all winter, he became angry and began making unreasonable demands. It's easy to see Isaac as a bungling fool, as I think Coniates did, but I feel great sympathy for him. He was facing down the possibility of Constantinople being captured. His flailing is an understandable reaction to the immense pressure he was under. In response to this latest delay, though, Frederick finally gave in to the hawks in his camp. He wrote home, telling his son to begin preparations for an assault on Constantinople. More men and money must be sent, and the Italian fleets should be recruited to the cause in order to surround the Byzantine capital the following spring. 
Isaac's intransigence had managed to start the very war he was trying to avoid. Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed. Barbarossa had no choice but to attack Byzantium if he wanted to cross the sea, but he didn't really want to. And the Italian fleets would cost a fortune to hire and probably take six months to be ready. Isaac, for his part, changed his tune and began to make friendlier overtures. In the new year, a deal was brokered and signed at Adrianople in February 1190. Isaac would provide the necessary ships to transport the Crusaders over to Anatolia, where they would find markets waiting for them. Gifts of money and silks were handed over, and no compensation was sought for the damage done to Thrace by months of Latin occupation. Frederick, for his part, would restrain his men from ravaging the countryside in Anatolia. Five hundred leading men from both sides gathered in the Hagia Sophia on the 22nd of February to swear to honour the agreement. Isaac sent 18 hostages to remain in the German camp until the crusade passed from Byzantine territory. The absolute worst-case scenario had been avoided, but this whole episode was a humiliation for Byzantium. First the Hungarians, then the Normans, now the Crusaders. Byzantine control of the Balkans was merely an illusion. Its people had little reason not to throw in their lot with the Serbs and Bulgarians. The occupation by the Latins had also seen anti-Byzantine propaganda spread like wildfire. The Latin ambassadors claimed that they had been humiliated in front of representatives of Saladin, which seems unlikely. They claimed that the Patriarch had encouraged his congregation to murder any Latins they came across, which clearly didn't happen, and that poisoned wine barrels were being circulated in Thrace to kill crusaders. All this nonsense fueled a sense that the Orthodox were not real Christians, and beneath the contempt of men on crusade. Nasty incidents took place, including a church being burnt down on spurious grounds. It's not hard to imagine in this atmosphere how Constantinople could be turned into a legitimate target by the Latins. Barbarossa and his men made their way to Gallipoli, where they were ferried to Asia by the Imperial Navy. It was late March when the last Latins touched down, and the crusade spent the next month marching south towards Philadelphia. Again, they complained that the locals kept attacking them. It's doubtful that this was done on Isaac's orders. He had no incentive to delay the Latins any further. It was probably just local opportunism. By the 21st of April, the Latins arrived at Philadelphia, but Theodore Mangafas had failed to prepare the size of market that the Crusaders required. Small contingents of Latins had to be let into the city to buy food, and inevitably a brawl broke out. The Latins were arrested and held overnight. A major diplomatic incident could have unfolded, but the governor begged for Barbarossa's forgiveness and the matter was quickly resolved. The crusade now moved east along the Meander Valley and eventually out of Roman territory. It had been a miserable year for Isaac Angelos. 
He was an inexperienced emperor, and it had shown. His indecision had very nearly brought the empire to the brink of catastrophe. He badly needed a victory to help secure his hold on power, and the obvious threat to face down was the growing Bulgarian revolt. In our next regular episode, Isaac will march out again against Peter and Arson, while still more pretenders will rise against him across the empire. For those of you who would like to follow Frederick Barbarossa as he crosses the plateau, I have recorded a special episode about the rest of the Third Crusade. That episode will be available on Patreon in a few days' time at the $6 a month patronage level. Just go to patreon.com forward slash history of Byzantium to sign up. If you do, you can hear how Barbarossa gets on when he reaches Myriokephalon, and we'll talk about the French king and Richard the Lionheart, who will be sailing to Utremia sometime later. If you pay $6 to get your hands on that Patreon podcast feed, you will also get access to every other bonus episode of the History of Byzantium that's ever been produced. John Chrysostom, Porphyrius the Charioteer, Women in the Roman World, The Capture of Jerusalem in the First Crusade, all just for $6. And you can cancel your sub anytime you like. I mean, come on, that's an insane offer. You'd have to be crazy not to take it up. Anyway, I'll stop shilling like a Byzantine merchant at the side of the road and let you audio pilgrims go past onto your next destination. <laughs>